Let's review some films. Let's review some films. Let's review some films. See what we gotta say. Where we're going for today's episode, we don't need roads. Mostly because we're just sitting here. That's right. Today we are talking about on the franchise Strikes Back, the Back to the Future trilogy. I was gonna say series, but I want it to be trilogy, and I want it to stay that way forever. I do not <laughs> want to see anything else happen to this series. Um, the all right, here. <laughs> I'm laying it down real thick right off the the bat here. Uh, I am Steve. Uh, with me, as always, is Linton and Tim. Um, hey, hey, hello. Guys. And uh, like I said, we're talking about Back to the Future. We're talking bah, about. Bah, uh, bah. Sam, we're going to get sued for that. Stop it. (laughs) Yeah, actually. Oh, man. (laughs) Alan Silvestri is very litigious. Um, We are once again talking about what essentially equates to a absolutely perfect uh, series. So here we go once again. We talked about Toy Story um, in our first episode. We are now talking about Back to the Future, another just flawless flawlessly executed uh trilogy um and we have some interesting differing thoughts that i'm actually really excited to get into between the three of us uh based on our notes so let's just dive right in um as always tim is uh getting himself nice and drunk during the recording and uh right now tim you are drinking what uh this is gonna be fun so i made my own version of doc's wake-up juice so it is whiskey, vodka, some V8, the spicy hot variety, some Oof. chipotle hot sauce, oh. a dash of red pepper chili flakes, and a drop of liquid smoke. Nice. <laughs> you know, they never in, in the – this is a reference to the third movie. This is never – it's never mentioned what would happen if you drank the wake-up juice while you were completely sober because it appears to really like – like it enhances your your senses pretty substantially, so I wonder what it would do to somebody who's dead sober when they drink it. So I, it might turn well, you yeah. into like a super, says, super. I have no idea. I was. I wanted. Let's be clear. Nobody said Tim's dead sober right now. <laughs> it's, it's just nobody I, has for quite some time. <laughs> I knew. Yeah. No. I knew this. I was really only going to be able to drink one of these, so I did pregame. So. Yeah. Woof. I right, had. Well, I had at least as much whiskey as Doc Brown drank. Maybe more, uh, probably more. He did not hold his liquor very well. But yeah, all I, he had was one shot. Yeah, yeah I wanted I wanted to drink this live because I have no idea what this is going to taste like. It will probably be terrible. Yeah, so it sounds. Someone, someone, give me a drum roll here. Christmas vacation style, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and oh man, Tim Tim's face is very fun. Everyone. <laughs> All right, we'll it's check like back in drinking, on Tim on this one. That's like drinking pulled pork. <laughs> that doesn't sound so pureed, bad. Yeah, this is just pureed pork. <laughs> Great. All right, that was that actually was not the worst. Okay, so hey, right, everyone, we'll see where you're at. We'll see where you're at. I, in, I feel uh, like this should be everyone's new quarantine cocktail. Go for it, everyone. Yeah, make it worse. Make make your time in quarantine worse with Doc's wake up juice. Wake up juice All challenge. Right. Post your ingredients in the comments. Good God. Oh, my God. Um, okay, so uh, back to the future. Um, let's do kind of a uh, you know couple-minute rundown between uh, each of us. Let's just talk about you know um, our thoughts uh, on the series 
a little bit of plot summary, a little bit of a little bit of tastes of what's to come, that kind of thing. So, Linton, let's start with you. All right. Well, I am a Back to the Future fanatic from way back. It is uh, probably the first movie that I remember watching as a kid that like wasn't a cartoon. So, you know, like had it taped off HBO. So I'm thinking like maybe four or five years old or something. And then we owned the other two on VHS and I've watched them countless times on that and then on TV and then DVD and eventually Blu-ray. And so, yeah, I just love the series all the way from childhood and continued onwards. And there's definitely series of movies that I've seen growing up, like Monster Squad comes to mind, where it's something I super embraced at the time. But if I go back and look at it now, I think, I don't know, some of this is like not great or doesn't hold up. But I do think that these films are incredibly well made, that they are almost like effortlessly well made, like it just moves so well. And rewatching them this time and thinking even more critically than usual, I was just thinking about how how each entry kind of they don't just go to different eras. They do different things with the story beats and they push things in certain ways. And yet the story and the overall product never suffers. It's never like they cross some boundary where, Oh, that didn't work. Or they really seem to be struggling with this. And I just, I do wonder if they had kept making them, you know, at what point, kind of like with toy story, at what point, does it start to be kind of uh, a problem or, you know, are they struggling to, to do it? But I, I do think even in the three that they made, it's pretty impressive how just flowing and natural everything seems, especially since parts two and three were never planned. The sequels were kind of forced upon Zemeckis and Gale. I'll talk about that later. So that they were able to make such worthy sequels sequels that I feel are among the best sequels ever made. And the only other thing that I will say before I pass the torch here is, so I lived in LA for a little bit and I did uh, extra work. And one of the days that I was doing extra work, I was on the set of, it was a ghost, ghost whisperer, whatever that Jennifer Love Hewitt show was. I think that's yeah, what it was. I think it was ghost whisperer. Yeah. yeah. Sure, my favorite. Yeah. So I was on that and they shot it in the universal backlot which is where Hill Valley was filmed. So, I mean, a lot of things are shot in the Universal Backlot, specifically like the Clock Tower has been used for a bunch of other things. To Kill a Mockingbird, the first episode of The Twilight Zone, which I also love, uh, Gremlins. So numerous things have shot on the Backlot, but Back to the Future is probably the most famous in featuring the full town square. And they redid it all for, you know, they did it for the 50s, they did it for the 80s, they did it for the alternate you know, 1985, they did it for 2015. And then when they shot the third one, they they went and like shot it out in the desert. But anyway, being on there after being, uh, being there after being a lover of the series for so long was like a semi-religious experience where I was able to like walk, because <laughs> we were there for a lot of the day. And when you're an extra, a lot of times you just kind of have time to just wander around when you're not doing stuff. So I was able to walk around pretty much the whole area and be like, oh, well, that's where this happened. And I was like, oh, that's the alleyway in the future where they land the car. And I could kind of... Oh, that's cool. Because it all looks exactly the same. It's just the yeah. set dressing is all different, but the basic buildings are all the same. And because I was there and because I had to, I had to steal something from this place 
to have forever. I'm glad that's where and, this ends up. <laughs> and so, you know, obviously I'm glad you're providing evidence for the FBI yeah. as well. So obviously there's not going to be anything from back to the future there, uh, you know, and that clock tower didn't even like look the same at that point. They'd changed it into a different building, but they, that town square did still have like fake bushes and trees and stuff similar to like it did in the, the you know, in the eighties when they shot it. So I stole a leaf off of one of the bushes and I have it now. <laughs> oh, right. that looks just like it did in the movie. I don't care, Tim. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry that you're dead inside and don't love everything, anything rather. But yeah, you got so, you got somebody fired for that. So anyway, so that is uh, there were 113 leaves on this tree, and now there's 112. Someone's head is gonna roll. Uh, Each know. of these leaves costs three thousand dollars. It was worth it. So yeah, absolutely, it's worth it. That's great. so that that is my connection to the trilogy. I love them. I've always loved them, and uh, that's where I'm at. All right, Tim. Uh, before I talk about, I just want to circle back and point out that even at five years old, Litton was pirating movies. It's not to tape stuff off TV. Isn't pirating? Isn't it? No. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> no. Why? Widely. Never accepted. mind. Never mind. <laughs> Now, if there was, was actually there was actually was, a there was actually a pretty famous court case of where like studios tried to get that blocked and like they ruled it like no people can do that. Oh, now okay. Linton did instead of a lemonade stand, Linton did have a uh, video oh, store he was operating <laughs> on his front lawn where he was selling his tapes. All right, and that's that my, got him in trouble. Yeah, that's my mistake. He only committed one of the two crimes that I thought he did in that in that story. So I just apologies. feel bad for you that like you grew up not having any tapes. I, I oh, I did. I did. My uh, my dad taped, he copied VHS tapes for Ninja Turtles and the original Star Wars, I think was, I think he actually taped that on beta. We had a beta player when I was really little. So that was my first experience of Star Wars. Anyway, I got way off track on that. My introduction <laughs> to uh, Back to the Future was also VHS tapes. It was getting them out from the library. And I actually watched part two first. That was my introduction to the series is at some point we had part two at home and we popped it in and I watched that. So for, for a good while I had, I watched part two and I think I saw part three as well before I actually went back and watched the original, which is kind of a, I think it's kind of a weird way to approach the series, but I also think that yeah. might have to do with some of my thoughts when we get into our rankings and everything. But um, so I watched the VHSs from the library a lot as a kid and I always enjoyed them. I do think it's an incredibly fun series. That's the word that kept coming to mind as I was rewatching it this time as well. It's just a lot of fun. And I think that one of the things that, especially watching it now sets the, the trilogy apart from other film series is they have a great physicality to them. And I think part two does it the best out of all of them. And that's part of the reason why part two is my favorite of the trilogy, but the way that everything is staged, the way there's like an exaggeration in people's physical movements and expressions, it feels very cartoony. It feels like you may as well be watching a cartoon, but it never crosses over to where it feels overly hammy either. Like a lot of comedies, you get that over-exaggeration expression to sell a joke, but you know, when that happens in comedies, there's, there's this sense of like, oh yeah, they're trying to be funny. So it's all part of, it's like this vaudevillian kind of mindset of go big to sell the joke. 
I just, but I think Back to the Future strikes a much better balance where it's there. You get this great kind of, these great visual gags and not really pratfalls, but those kind of, you know, that physical humor and they exaggerate it to sell it, but it feels very natural to the world that the movie is presenting. And that just really stood out to me as something that I think this series really excels at that I don't see a lot of in other franchises. And it just sells the fun of it. And the tone of the movies, for the most part, is very light and kind of just kind of going on a romp. So I think that fits well with the tone that the movie is is kind of setting for itself. And that's, it, it makes it all go down really easily. It's all wonderful. Uh, that being said, I, uh, you know, Steve mentioned there are some interesting divergence and in thoughts on the series that we'll get into. I don't think it's as perfect as the two of you do. So I like I I feel like I have more criticism of things Sacrilege. and right Linton's gonna kill me by the end of this, uh, but it's it, it, even even with those you know my criticisms and my, and my divergent thoughts, at the end of the day it is still a very fun series and as Linton was saying it there really isn't a significant loss of quality amongst the three movies it it works really well as a consistent whole. Well, you and I didn't rank. We should probably do that real quick. I'll just say because I didn't think to do it. Uh, for me, it's the first one. I I think it. Uh, the second one is great. I think the second one was my favorite as a kid. Uh, but for me, it's all just like by a hair. Each one. So for me, I go one, two, three. But I don't think it's like oh, three's the bad one or three's a big drop off. I mean, for me, I I love them all kind of across the board. I think the first one just has some special aspects or just because it created this whole world uh, versus yeah. say like the star Wars trilogy, you know, people kind of gravitated to empire and, you know, the original's great, but I, I think you can definitely see an improvement from, you know, the original star Wars to empire with these. I, I feel it's like similar to toy story movies where it's just kind of straight through. So mine, mine is one, two, three. Mine, mine would be two, three, one, and I'll get into my reasons for that as we start talking about different aspects, but I want Steve to, to go ahead with his rundown. Yes. <clears throat> well, I don't want it to go unsaid uh, and unmentioned that Linton has himself a cornucopia of Back to the Future memorabilia currently on display here. He's wearing, he's got the Cafe 80s glass. He's got a Goldie Wilson for Mayor Button. He's wearing uh, Marty's hat from the second movie. He's got the hoverboard and uh, I might be missing something else, but also he's got the glorious uh, scale model of the De DeLorean from the third one that Doc puts together on the train track, the little model, uh, like a wooden block looking DeLorean that they use for their experiment uh, with the train tracks. And so and he's wearing a Rick and Morty shirt. So, and the Gray Sports Almanac is behind me. Oh, that's right. And you got the Gray Sports Almanac. Yes. Very cool. Um, yeah, all good stuff. So I, don't, I wanted to make sure that was out there, that Linton, <laughs> Linton is a super fan. I am, um, I am breaking the cardinal rule of the film PCU and that I am wearing the shirt of the band yeah. I'm going to go see. But so Correct. be it. Yeah, worth it. Um, so, yeah, so I, you know, my ranking uh, is uh, the same as Linton's. It's, it just goes one, two, three. And again, I think it's very, again, by, you know, the sliver kind of thing. I think what this 
series does so well is that each movie builds off of the last. And obviously that's partly due to the fact that literally each of the sequels starts, um, you know, exactly right after the end of the previous movie. So they're all kind of meant to be told as one singular story in a way. Um, but as Linton kind of said, uh, the first movie there's, to me, there's just something very special about it. It's, it's about as perfect a blockbuster as there's ever been made. I think there's like some other ones out there, obviously that I think kind of fit this mold, but like what, what a like crazy fun adventure the first back to the future is it's a master stroke in storytelling. It makes really bold narrative choices. You're just dropped in on these characters and you don't even have to like, there's always like a lot of fun of like being like, well, who's doc Brown and like, what's his deal. But like, it's such a good story and the characters work is so good amongst all three of these movies that it doesn't even like register as a question. You're just like, yeah, he's this cool scientist that just exists in this world. And that's all I need to know. This really um, cool older guy who hangs out with high school kids. Yeah. I mean, you can obviously One make high that school joke. kid. <laughs> yeah. And Jennifer's cool with him, <laughs> but like, sure. Like you can make that joke and obviously that's fun, but it's like, in the actual story itself that doesn't like ever come across as like a weird thing. It's just like, yeah, all right. Like he's this, like he's helping this scientist friend. Um, and, and so anyway, I think the first one is just, is just about as like amazing a, a summer blockbuster as you'll ever have. Um, I think the second and third ones I both love, you know, for different reasons. Uh, but the first one always holds a special place in my heart because I, like you guys, it's like, I honestly don't remember the first time I ever watched it, but like, I remember seeing it. It's one of those movies that was on like a deep rotation when you're a kid where like, you've got like three movies that like when you're on summer break from school, you just watch. It was like Jurassic Park and Back to the Future and then whatever else was on. I had those couple movies and I just watched it over and over and over. So it's just sort of a movie that's ingrained in me. Um, and it, it it's one of those movies when I, when I see it on TV. I could have just finished watching it if I like was scrolling through the channels and I saw it on AMC or whatever channels airing it these days. I'll probably watch it from whatever point it's on. It's just that kind of movie. So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I there's a lot of fun stuff to kind of like dig in on this because while I do think like, yeah, it's like a perfect to me, I feel like it's a it's a it's a perfect trilogy in terms of what it's trying to do and say. I think there's also a lot of stuff that people have said about the series over the years. Like it's gotten kind of an interesting uh, over the years, uh, you know, the opinions on the second movie and the third movie, especially, I think everybody's fairly pretty much in agreement on the first, except for Tim. And then, you know, you've got, I think very interesting divergent thoughts collectively on the internet about the second and the third movies, which I I'll, I'll really be interested in us talking about. Um, but yeah, that's kind of where I stand uh, on the series as a whole. Um, I love it. So, um, all right. So let's kind of just uh, let, let's just dive in. Um, I mean, we could we could go we could talk plot, but th that's going to be a, a you know that's going to be a really hard ride. Everyone has seen this, this movie. Every, yeah. or, or these movies, like. And honestly, the entire second movie is an explanation of plot, and I don't know if I could do it much better or in any shorter amount of time than the runtime of 
yeah. part two. So it might not be worth it. So let's just move on. Yeah, because um, the, the second one in particular is would take up way too much time because the first like parts one and three are essentially period pieces with like sci-fi framing but part two is where they really lean into the sci-fi and time travel aspects because i mean you, you said like everyone has watched these movies caitlin watched them with me but she really only remembered the first one so when we got to parts two and three, it, it was more or less new for her. And when we watched like part two, she was just like, oh my God, this movie just doesn't stop. Like, it's just, <laughs> it's just like a roller coaster just keeps going from one thing to the next. And I, and that's part of the reason why it's my favorite of the three, because there's that roller coaster aspect and it really does lean into the time travel aspects where it's jumping around and showing you a lot of different things where the first and third are the, the storytelling is much more concentrated, but well, I yeah, want to get, yeah, I want to get into that. I want to like, I want to talk about, the, uh, not only I, I definitely see why, you know, the second movie is your favorite. And I think that's not a super rare opinion. I think that that's a lot of people kind of feel that way. Uh, but what I am interested in is kind of getting to the heart of why you might rank the first one as your you know quote unquote least favorite of the series because you know why why you prefer it the least it, that that's an interesting opinion that I don't think many people hold about the series so there's a, I think there's a couple of reasons for it the first and I think this is somewhat tied to the fact that I saw part 2 first and I'm pretty sure that in terms of my own personal viewing experience I watched part 1 last of the three. I'm not 100% on that part. I know part two was first for me. I'm fairly certain part three I watched next and then went back to watch the first. Uh, just I th And I think that had more to do with the availability of the movies at the library, you know, because I was a little kid and my parents were just getting stuff for us to watch. But part of it is I parts two and three, as you said, they all kind of tell one larger story. But I think parts two and three feel more as a whole. Like I put it in the notes, I kind of, it's almost like part one is the Hobbit to part two and three's Lord of the Rings, where it's all telling one larger story, but part one feels separate enough. Like it's necessary things. It's things that had to happen in order for parts two and three to occur. But parts two and three have more of an interconnectedness. And this is probably, you know, just a, 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 an aspect of how these were filmed. Like you guys were saying, part one was filmed on its own. There was not an intention of there being sequels. And then the studio said, hey, you should make more. And then Zemeckis and Gale came up with parts two and three. And I'm, this is something I'm sure Litton will get into more because he knows about it. But, you know, then they actually film they wrote and filmed parts two and three essentially together. So there, you have a lot more things that kind of connect those two, like Marty's feelings about being called chicken, which weren't introduced until part two. They drop a lot of hints about Doc's love of the Old West in part two that were not mentioned in part one at all. The whole bulletproof vest thing that happens uh, in in part three with the shootout, you know, they show Clint Eastwood doing that on the TV in part two. So there's a lot more breadcrumbs. There's a lot more foreshadowing that make two and three feel like they are one complete story 
that isn't happening with part one. So that's part of it is just, I feel there two and three are more connected. And so again, I don't think part one is a terrible movie. And that I even said like saying it is the worst. It feels really harsh because it's not like it's bad, but so that's part of it. And then the other aspect is I think there are, and, and I and I went back and forth a lot because there are things in part one that are just so super iconic that it feels like you can't rank it last, like the whole lightning striking the clock tower to send Marty back. Like that is such a cool moment. And that is probably one of the more iconic things from the series, aside from maybe hoverboards in part two uh, and the DeLorean itself just as a car. But then there are also aspects that, like, especially watching it now, I'm just kind of like, they stand out to me. And I don't want to take up too much time, but so, like, if people want to jump in on certain parts, part of it is... Well, why, why I, don't we... We could... I mean, if it makes sense, we could maybe, like, do a rundown of problems that we see with with the series later on, if you want, if we're just focusing yeah. on kind of a, where we're putting them. Yeah, so yeah. I guess we can get into the the things that jump out at me at part one later. But yeah, so it's it's the fact that parts two and three feel more of a whole to me. And I have specific issues with things in part one that don't necessarily make it a bad movie, especially considering, you know, it was made in what, 80... 85? The first, 85. The first one? Yeah, the first, the first one. one came out in 85. They were shooting okay. in 80. Okay, so, you know... Uh, but yeah, so we'll we'll get into those specific issues because part two I think has some issues as well, even though it's my favorite. But uh, that when it gets to like time travel stuff, but we can talk about those later. So uh, I'll just say like you know I, I mean I'm totally fine like with with Tim saying like two is his favorite. I I do for me it's a little off of putting three above one, not because I think three's bad. I think three is incredibly good. But I, I, I guess I understand two a little bit more because two pops, two, as Tim said, is a nonstop thrill ride. Two also does a lot of really inventive stuff in it on a narrative level and on a filmmaking level that I think is incredibly impressive. And then just you get to visit multiple timelines, which I think, you know, time periods and timelines, which I think is really cool. So, uh, but I, I still, I still will champion the first movie kind of as Steve said, is like a perfect blockbuster. I think it's up there with things like Empire Strikes Back and Raiders, which I've also, on rewatching those, noticed how much the pacing plays a role in these movies working so well. It's just every scene is there for a reason, and it just pulls you one to the next, one to the next, and almost, you know, almost every scene is is memorable. Like, there's obviously scenes that are going to pop out of all three of these movies and others, but there's going to be scenes that pop out more than others, but this like the down scenes where you're between like big moments, those down scenes are still fun and interesting and good character work and development and good lines, like of all these movies. So I think back to future really operates uh, similar to those in it's just an incredibly well produced script. And I actually came across and looking up some stuff that apparently USC's film school does a class uh, and they use back to the future as the model for the perfect screenplay. So I would say that's apt because the movie just kind of works like clockwork, no pun intended. And it just moves you along one beat to the next. And then it ends with this amazing climax at the clock tower and, you know, just is an overall very strong package. And the only other thing that I'll add in regards to that is um, one thing that I saw 
I've seen before that's really odd, and we can dive into the divergence on, T Steve was talking about like some people not liking two or not liking three or whatever. So Dan Harmon, who created Rick and Morty, is a huge fan of the original movie, apparently doesn't like two and three, thinks they aren't hmm. well written, which really surprises me because I think <laughs> they are incredibly well written. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think the first one might be slightly better or just slightly more effortless, but I, I don't think there's any significant drop. But one weird thing, even though he didn't like two and three, one thing I saw once, and he's like, he is a story guy, like both on Community and Rick and Morty, he's like obsessed with like storytelling as a device. And like, he has this whole kind of theory of like a, it's like kind of a Joseph Campbell-like thing, story circle he's devised. So he is like very much dedicated to storytelling as a profession and as a, you know, a way of life. But I remember reading some article or something where he commented that the movie works so well, but that it breaks from what you are supposed to do in films or in stories in that in, in storytelling, you're supposed to have a character who either wants something overt. That's very clear. Like, you know, James Bond has to get this device to prevent, you know, nuclear explosion or whatever, or yeah. a character has like a, uh, an unexpressed desire that isn't put right out there, but is is known to the audience. And he said that back to, that Marty McFly doesn't have that. And when I heard that, I was like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" Like, like I'm <laughs> yeah. fine. I'm fine with like looking at this. You know, it's obviously something I love, and I'm fine with looking at things from another way. But it was so bizarre to hear this guy who loves the film and loves the love storytelling to apparently like watch that movie and think that Marty doesn't want anything, which I think is totally untrue because to me, Marty wants a better life. That's, he doesn't state it. He doesn't spoon feed it at the audience, but he's got a girlfriend that he's trying to get with. Her dad is like picking them up and there's kind of an implication of like, you know, it's like the dad's calling to her and Marty's trying to get her to weekend away. And then when he's, you know, they're trying to go camping but then the car's wrecked. And why is the car wrecked? Oh, because my dad's boss, who bullies him and has bullied him since he was a kid, like, was drunk and wrecked the car. And my dad's kind of a wimp and an idiot. And my mom's mm. a miserable drunk. And my siblings are kind of like dead ends. And I, the one thing I like is music. And I'm trying to make my way with this band. And they tell me I can't play for the dance. So, like, the beginning of that movie sets it up like even though Michael J. Fox is cool and Marty seems cool, his life from his perspective kind of sucks. And so yeah, I, yeah. I feel that is the journey. It's it's he's not outwardly stating it, but through his actions, he improves his parents' lives, which then ultimately help to improve his life as well and ruin Biff Tannen's life. Um <laughs> but but so that that's the only thing I wanted to pop out on there because I um, it was an odd thing to see that as a critique in the past because I feel that those elements are there and maybe it's just, it's that effortless. The script, to me, the script doesn't have to spoon feed you and tell you, here's what I want, yeah. guys. And right, I, right. I, but I feel that first 20 minutes sets that up perfectly of where he's at. And I think that builds on that in the second movie because I was actually really taken aback after another viewing of the second movie at just how kind of dark that movie is like, yeah, it's a, it's a nonstop 
fun thrill ride and it's a lot of adventure, but like, it's a pretty dark movie because like at that point in the journey, Marty's future is pretty bad. It's pretty heinous. Um, he's got a pretty shitty, like he's married with kids. Um, but it doesn't seem like it's all that happy a life because his job's terrible. He does get fired from the job. Um, he's a, he's a bigger, he's as big a wimp as he's ever been. Um, he, he still has that debilitating thing where he, he can, can't walk away from a fight if somebody calls him a chicken and it always leads down a bad road for him. And so he sees his future. It's not good. Uh, until he intervenes, his son and daughter both go to prison for like decades. So like you're pop, you're like plopped into a movie right at the beginning where you're just like, Oh, Marty's life turns out really shitty. And honestly, you don't really get to see that change until the very end of the third movie where he doesn't do that drag race. So like for, and then also he also uh, manipulates, you know, accidentally, a time to where there's that alternate 1985 where Biff beats up his marries and beats up his mom and kills his dad. So like, there's like a whole dark element there too. It it all gets erased, but like for a lot of that movie, you're also contending with the Donald Trump, Biff Tannen. I was just gonna say, Um, I got to keep my track record of mentioning (laughs) Donald Trump in these episodes. Biff becomes Donald Trump. Yeah. Like I knew that was going to come up, Um, (laughs) but so I, you know, I, I, yeah, very much was like, just kind of like, whoa, this movie is like, this is, as Marty would say, this movie's heavy. <laughs> um, so what I love about, and I, I mean, I love it. It's great. I like that. Um, but I like that it's, I like that the first movie is, is a singular adventure where the stakes are just for, you know, Marty to just kind of go back into time to fix his parents' lives and get everything back on track and make sure that he doesn't disappear. Like the stakes are, um a little a little more concentrated the second movie the stakes are it's a darker film and the stakes are like galactic where it's just like oh my god like the entire universe is at stake here and what i like about the third movie is that then it actually brings it back to being like um it's a it's a completely different genre film it has a lot of heart and emotion and it's it's a movie that's more about Doc than it is about Marty. And Marty, like you're saying, Linton, it's like his drive in the third movie is to save Doc's life. Um, Doc is he knows Doc's going to be killed over 80 bucks. And so he has to go back and save him. So, like, that's a selfless thing Marty's doing to be able to help his friend. It's not for him. You know, I mean, that's the driving force of that movie. Um, in Buford's but, defense, eighty bucks then was probably like five grand. So I was just about to make <laughs> yeah, that point myself. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> and you know, I mean, there weren't a lot of rules, but laws and rules back then. So I mean, it probably was within his right. And I think um, that's an appropriate dollar tag to place on someone's life. I would say, yeah, to be killed over eighty dollars in eighteen eighty-five—that's not—that's <laughs> you know, no small sum. So I, you know, I think, yeah, I, I you know. I do find it, yeah, it odd to to have an opinion to say that, like, you know, Marty's Marty doesn't have something driving him throughout the movie. But that, going back to just what I, you know, kind of love about, um, you know, the first movie the most is just that I I do like that it is that singular uh, focus and that it's it's a very concentrated storyline with like one specific goal in mind. I do think the second movie gets a little convoluted in its 
like explanations of everything that's happening. But I think what works to its advantage is that it filmed and was meant to be a companion piece to the third movie. And that's what I like about what you're saying, Tim, is like, I like that you've got those two, but I love that you've also got a first movie that you could watch either on its own or in tandem with the rest. Like it all, the way that they're always going back and forth in time, I can, I can take this movie in any way, shape or form and watch it in any order and in any way and still like it. Um, So yeah, go go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, both of you have spoken of like the second and third movie being more connected or more cohesive to each other, whereas, you know, it, it operates differently than the first one. So just I'll very briefly state, because I know the history of all of this shit. Um, the original was filmed just as meant as a solo entry, even though the car flies off at the end and it seems like, oh, that could be a sequel. The sequel era of the 1980s was not like the landscape was not the same as it was now where it was not expected where, Oh, this is going to be a franchise film. And we're going to do 18 of them and interconnected universes, which I have no problem with, but that was yeah. not the landscape at that time. And obviously you did have some film sequels, you know, Indiana Jones series was doing it and star Wars, but on the whole sequels weren't looked at as necessarily a profitable opportunity so they sh- they wrote it as a one-off, and the idea of them flying off the end, they saw it basically as just kind of a final joke. And also, I think, to kind of be like, a, they go on to other adventures type deal. And mm. then they were going to... Uh, I'll, I'll address this a little bit more later, but but basically, they, they kind of had their hand forced into making a sequel. But the my point is that parts two and three were originally one script. They wrote it as Paradox, hmm. was the working title, and it was just way too big. Like, so what we see in the movie where he goes to, uh, there, there were some abandoned ideas. At one point, they're going to go to the 60s, and Marty was going to, like, prevent his own conception and stuff. So there was some earlier draft. <laughs> Yeah. What's that? <laughs> uh, what, a, what, a, what a convoluted way to commit suicide. So there were, there were some earlier yeah. drafts, but... But then even after those drafts, they landed on the going to the future, going to alternate 1985, going to the 50s. And then I think the idea was the third act was going to be the Western, which would have, I'm sure they could have pulled it off, but it would have been weird because you would have been trying to wedge so much story. I guess maybe the Western stuff would have just operated the same as the future stuff and that alternate 85 where it's like okay this is a backdrop for the rest of what we're doing in this but i i do think mm. it's better that they split it apart because then you get to dive in fully into the western and get a full movie set there but yeah the original goal was it was going to be called paradox they're just doing one sequel and then they realized that the story was just getting too big that that if they put the western stuff in there it was just going to be too much and so they decided okay well we could actually flesh out the western into its own film and that's, I think, where filming them back to back came from as well, because they had already basically planned this story as one thing. And then I think they realized, oh, we could save a lot of money by doing it this way, too. And so, Tim, in your notes, you had asked if this was like the first time that it happened, because they did it with the Matrix movies. They've done it with Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, and, of the Rings mm-hmm. and a bunch of Marvel stuff, uh, both uh, Infinity War, Endgame and stuff. Yeah. So it's become kind of a standard practice now. But yeah, from my knowledge, it's not the first. 
the 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 first, according to what I saw, of a major studio semi major is they did in the seventies two Three Musketeers movies back to back. So I mean, those I don't know how big they were, but they were probably you know bigger semi studio type things. And then I'm for the guessing, time, actually, yeah, yeah, and, I, and I'm guessing maybe there might be some horror stuff or something that may have done something like that on a low budget or you know low level. But Back to the Future is is probably the second and is probably the first time, uh, you know, it was done in like a major way. And now okay. it's become kind of a standard studio thing, but I, I but, always do a, Oh, sorry. Linton, oh, I, but yeah, just to sum up uh, that the reasons that two and three feel so connected and that there's so many things is because they were originally one script with carried over elements. I, uh, I do find I, every time I watch the second movie, I'm always like, I always forget that there's like the full trailer for the third part at the end of the second movie that basically gives that away well. the entire plot. <laughs> and you're just like, you're just kind of like, whoa, wow. I just saw like the entire third part here. Cause I did see that the set, the third movie came out like six months after the second movie. So it was pretty yeah. darn close uh, of a release, which actually I do think has part is part of the reason why I had a, a lower box office which it's the third movie, which is always kind of the case anyway. But I feel like maybe there's like a little bit of fatigue there, maybe um, when you're watching that. But yeah, I had um, the, I had the same thought where like yeah, the second part two ends out and they show all these things for part for part three. And I even mentioned that to Litton at one point. Like I forgot they did this. That is a really weird thing to come across because the only only thing that's close that I can think of is. Uh, the end after the credits of the first Captain America movie, they essentially put a trailer for the first Avengers movie as the end oh, credit yeah. stinger. But that's right. after the credits, so there's you have the whatever like 15 minute credits that blockbusters have now as the buffer between them. But this was just like immediately after to be continued, you get that like the music playing and a bunch of shots of Marty on a horse and doc Brown with his like steampunk guns and everything. I will say I, I love, I mean, I just absolutely love that scene in the second, at the end of the second movie, when Marty gets the letter uh, from Western union. And I mean, that it's just such a, this series is just so cool. I just like, well, there's so I don't many, know. There's I, just so I, much to like about it. Well, I agree. Like that there's certain scenes that just, they work so well with the acting, the writing, how the emotion that you're built, that's built into it. And then of course the score, which I will say, I mean, yeah. you may touch on it later, but I'll, I have the opportunity now. The score of all three of these movies is phenomenal. Uh, Alan Silvestri yeah. in general is a very talented uh, composer, but I do think that this is almost certainly his best work. And if you, if you're a big fan of scores, you dig into stuff because like, this is similar to like star Wars where certain characters have motifs. There's motifs that are associated with certain aspects of time travel or danger. I've, I've read different things of like what he was thinking going into each section of like, okay, this is what I use when like Biff Tannen's doing some shit, or this is what I'm using if Doc's <laughs> explaining something that's super convoluted. So yeah. Um, but yeah, you're right. Well, like I think... the, the Marty getting the letter is like incredibly touching. And then the, there's only one man who can help me and the music kicks in. And then you see the, the end of the last movie, which everybody loves. And then Marty zips around the corner. Like 
this, I, I will attempt to not go on and on during the course of the episode, but this, these, this series very much made me love time travel in fiction. So I like a lot of movies with it or stories. And I think, especially when you get into two and three, two, especially because it does it so much of just that, you know, well, we saw how the first one ended, but oh, hey, here's Marty zipping around. And just that kind of like we're inside of ourselves, you know, inside of mm-hmm. the story and messing with stuff. Yeah. But basically, I agree with you. The uh, him running in is one of my favorite moments of the second. Well, and I think, yeah. And I think, too, that what, again, we're kind of getting at here is I think one of like the hallmarks and best aspects of this series is, is the character work. I mean, it, it, these are two Doc. Brown and Marty McFly are just two of like the best written characters ever put on screen. Um, and I think that's why like the end, you know, the third movie and, and in a moment, like at the end of the second movie where he gets the letter um, and you know, it's from doc Brown from the past or, you know, the entire third movie, which is like kind of a step back from just like the whiz bang time travel, you know, kind of stuff. And it's a slowed down, more emotional, uh, kind of like finale to these characters. It's like, it's all well-earned because these are characters you have, you have been with and enjoyed for three movies to that point. And I mean, you know, you're so invested in, in these characters by that point that like, even if the third movie is like a slowed down completely, like sort of different, you know, detour from what you might expect, it works so well because you're just at that point on board for anything with these guys. And, you know, there's still huge stakes here because you, you want to know, like, Doc, what's Doc Brown going to do? Um, he gets, you know, his his wrinkle is Clara, uh, comes on board in the third movie, just kind of plopped in as a new character. But she she has a lot of implications. Marty is still, you know, stuck. Now he's stuck in 1885 and they're trying to get the, the DeLorean to work in that era, uh, you know, using the locomotive. And so there there's there's that, you know. Uh, suspense but I don't know I just think that and th- and this will get into why I think they should just let it be is these are just these characters are just so great and specific to these movies that I don't think it works any other way I just I, I just love these characters and they're they're just so iconic to me and um, that's why I like I, I'm like I always have a hard time like grappling with like I see why people say this but like I don't know how you couldn't like the third movie. <laughs> it's just like, I, I, I watched it again. It's the one I've seen the least, but I watched it again uh, for this, obviously. And I just, when I was finished with it, I was just like, how could you, how could you not like this movie after like, after seeing what they've gone through in the first two and just seeing where so, things, and it's like, how I could you not? The only I, thing I've ever heard, like growing up, uh, like I had friends who it used to be on uh, USA and stuff. So people would watch them. But I remember hearing from not a lot of people, but from some people, they didn't like third ones like, oh, because it's basically a Western. It's like, grow up. Like, to me, that's (laughs) that's not a good like I understand we all have genres that we're more drawn to versus not. But to me, that's not a good reason to just reject it outright because you should still be connected to these characters. And it's yeah, it's a Western, but they do a lot of fun time travel stuff they do a lot it's still the same kind of zany adventure there, there's like there's even if you aren't a huge fan of westerns i would think you could watch this and still see value and so that's the only thing i've ever heard of people uh and i the only other thing i'll throw out is that i i had forgotten this but 
when the second one came out, I guess Zemeckis wasn't a big fan that Universal didn't promote it very well to let people know it was two parts. That, that oh. I mean, the second one, I would argue the second one does tell a complete story. It ends on like a cliffhanger, but I, f- I don't feel cheated by the end of the second. It's like an Empire Strikes Back kind of yeah. thing. Um, but yeah. I guess like a lot of audiences, or, you know, people in the audience were a little more like pissed off or, you know, I don't know to what extent, but it wasn't promoted as we're doing two. And then in six months, we're doing three, like the way Avengers and stuff, like we knew that from the beginning for Endgame mm-hmm. and everything. Perpetual so, motion machine. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> so, yeah, Zemeckis, I think, wasn't a big fan of that. So that might have been the reason why the trailer was even put on there as sort of a, hey, it's coming, guys. Don't worry. Yeah. Like, So that might <laughs> might not have done that if it had been better promoted. Okay. So some people I, might, have, might have had a rougher view of the third one, possibly, because of those feelings. I don't know. Well, yeah. I, do, I do think the complaining that it's basically just a Western is really weird because the third one does more or less mimic the pacing and the just overall, overall kind of outline of the first movie. Cause the first one, I, I said like parts one and three are essentially period pieces. Part one is basically just like American graffiti, but you drop someone from the future into it. Like it, it's it's very much a movie that's just about the fifties. The part yeah. three is very much a movie that's about the old west, or at least like you know, you know this particular version of the old west, the, the Hollywood version of the old west. But so it's kind of it's kind of weird to hold that against part three and not part one. Like Linton said, you can just not like westerns if that's a genre you don't like. Then you know whatever. I'm, you know, there's nothing the movie's going to be able to do at that point, but then it's just, oh yeah, I don't care for it because I don't like Westerns, not this is a terrible movie because West, like you, those are two different things to say, but I think, and well, I don't know, I, is because I, I, I want to go back to the first one. Yeah, I want to get into your thoughts on the first ones. Uh, so, first, first one, Tim. Yeah, because the, and because I talked about, we, we've talked about two and three being more cohesive. And that's, that's part of the reason why part one is last in the rankings for me. The other reasons are, and, and not all of these are necessarily, none of these, I don't think make it a bad movie, even because a lot of it, you know, it's not intentional, but it is a movie that is more or less romanticizing the fifties. And watching that from 2020, it kind of just kind of feels eh, because you know it basically by by do, by going to the 1950s and structuring it this way, it is it is very like Marty and Doc like they have to be white people because of you know you know the joke about black people would never go back to the past and time travel is very much apparent with going back to the 1950s where the only black people we really see are in like are the musicians or like servers at the restaurant, like very much like subservient roles. And. But I think the movie, I don't, I think they're forward thinking on that because they have Goldie Wilson, like does have become him, the mayor. And, and that the movie kind of is like, Oh, nobody in the fifties believes that could even be a thing. And, you know, we know that he is and Marty knows that he is and Marty doesn't see it as be. So I, I, I would just say that I, I feel that the movie 
recognizes that and attempts to address it to some degree instead of just like sweeping it under the rug. It, it does attempt to, but uh, like you could, like if you had, uh, if Marty McFly was a black kid going back to 1950s, this would not play. Like it would not be the same kind of thing. Uh, yeah, but, but that's not but the more, kind of movie they're right, trying right, to tell. Right, 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 right. That's and not the get, story. But more, more importantly, and I don't see them trying more, to romanticize the fifties ever because they Biff Tannen is encapsulates all the some of the horrible things that come out of that decade in terms of like ignorance. He does, and, but there, but there are two two things that particularly jump out to me. One is yes, Biff Tannen is presented as as a monster, but they all like when when he attempts to rape marty's mom like they're 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 not like trying to make it like some just they're not shrugging it off necessarily but they also make it essentially the meat cute for his parents you, okay. and that I is have, really I have to, weird to me i i am willing to have for you to have your say of like negativity for it but you had those notes i just do not think how you are classifying that is correct because you said that it's the meat cute which one those characters for Lorraine and George, one they have already met in the course of the film. A meet cute, the characters have not met, and two, a meet cute is inherently supposed to be funny and quirky. So what you're describing is not a meet cute. It's like now we can talk about whether or not it should be a rape scene or whatever. But for me, it's George gets to be a legitimate hero in that moment. That's how I think that it's being presented. I don't think I don't think in any way we're supposed to think it's funny or quirky. We're supposed to see, oh, Biff Tannen is a monster, everyone. It's so that's so. I, so I just I see your notes yeah. on that. So I just I just don't. We can talk about whether or not that should have been filmed that way or whatever. But again, a meet cute, I would not call it. So meet cute might be the wrong turn to place it, but it's essentially you have now their their story of how they get together is oh yeah. Remember that time I prevented Biff from raping you? Like that's how they meet, and that's. But why? Kind of, but why is that? Why is that necessarily a bad thing? In that he says, "I say, you know, I." It's a terrible. It's an unfortunate and terrible, obviously, thing that that was going to happen, and it's something that you it, know it's women it, always contend with. But it's like, what's the what's necessarily the problem with like George finally becoming the man? that he was meant to be by saving the woman of his dreams. I don't know. You know, it's, it's like, it stands I, out I know, to me because it, again, I don't, it's I, I, the movie isn't necessarily playing it for laughs. So like Litton said, meet well, cute might, might not be necessarily. It's not playing it. For it's laughs, not playing it for laughs. So meet cute might not be the right thing to do it. But with, as I said, the tone of the movies overall are very much fun and they try to keep things light. So having this be in the middle, but I would of disagree it with that too. Though is, I would disagree with that because I think, like I said about even like the second movie, there's a lot of dark elements at play in this in all of these movies. There's like a, it balances that stuff a lot. There are dark elements, but at least at least the way I view the movies is there's still never any real danger. Like there's never any when I'm watching them, there's never any thought that I have that you know marty or doc are ever going to be in danger i've always felt that the movies in general keep things very light so then you have this attempted rape scene in the middle and they aren't presenting it as it's okay but it also kind of feels like especially when when george punches biff and he like you know takes uh Lorraine's hand like they they play the music which again gives it this feeling of oh this is 
this is very romantic. And you can say, you could say that, you know, him doing that is a very heroic moment for him. And that might ultimately be what the movie is trying to do. But the feel of the scene, at least to me, came across a little bit differently. And again, and this is, and this is the, the next issue I'm going to, I'm going to bring up. Part of it, I think, is also just me. Because I've talked, like, when I've talked about movies with my friend Jason, one of the things he's brought up to me is it's not necessarily that he disagrees with my views on things, but I'm, I'm not able to appreciate movies for like, and watch them for the time they were being made. Like it mostly came up when we were talking about the Mad Max series, but I, as I was watching back to the future, him saying that to me definitely felt relevant because, you know, 2020 me too and everything influenced the way I view that scene watching it now. Similarly, the Johnny B. Good scene where I, they more I, or I less have I, Marty McFly create, like, basically create Johnny B. Good and rock and roll as opposed to the black musicians. They kind of play it as a joke, but more or less it's it's whitewashing the history of rock and roll. And that's not their intent. I do not think Zemeckis and Gale were trying to be racist or anything, but watching that now, like, that's what I'm thinking. I think- all right. Well, that's some so, pretty heavy. That's some pretty heavy lifting on that. Yeah. I mean, I get what you're saying. It's an interesting. I'm all. F- I I think it's a very interesting viewpoint. I've never heard it put that way, and I do. I I value that because I think it's. And I've I wanna, never looked at the movie that way. I want to be clear. I, mean, I am not. Tr- I am not going from a cancel back to the future. No, I don't think you're digging. But, I don't uh, think you're digging for it. No, but, I don't. Uh, I don't see that. So I mean, obviously, I'm a fan. I, I you know I, I you know I, I will you know attempt to be. Uh, as as objective as possible, but I, I do think like the if we're moving away from Biff and we're talking about Marty creating rock and roll, I mean obviously I feel like you're taking something that's been a joke that's been talked about in the movie since and acting like it's text. And I don't because I don't I don't think the film is presenting it well. For one thing, Marty is not creating rock and roll. It, it's joking with the idea because Marty came from a time period when Chuck Berry absolutely did create Johnny Be Good. So the only reason Marty knows that song is because Chuck Berry wrote it. And so then Marty goes back in time, and then when this alternate reality that he's forming because he goes back in time, then does Chuck Berry theoretically get the idea for Johnny Be Good by hearing like ten seconds of it? So I don't, I feel the movie's just, it's playing with the time travel aspect. I don't think the movie is saying it was Marty McFly. It was a white kid all along. Like, I, I think that's kind of disingenuous to level it at the movie. I mean, if it were doing that, that would be kind of gross, but I don't think it is doing that. I think Marty only knows that song because he heard it from Chuck Berry. He is now creating a new alternate reality, essentially. So, okay, now there are two things I want to say, because this ties into what I said about how I don't necessarily know that time travel works the way the movies think it does, at least with the rules they presented. So first off, the other issue I have with the Johnny... Hey, Tim, watch your, watch your hand on that yeah, desk there, buddy. Sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> point this is what... This is the... As anybody who's listened to all these episodes knows, this is about the point of the episode where we we politely asked him to yeah. not bang on the desk because he's been drinking. When Tim is uh, <laughs> Tim is six wake up juices deep. This is when it happens. <laughs> this is when we fire Tim up and he starts to. <laughs> so the other issue I have with Johnny B. Good because I I feel like the move the, the implication the movie is making is that by 
handing the phone, like putting the phone out there, Chuck Berry is hearing this song and that is what is driving the inspiration for him to write Johnny B. Good. So setting aside any racial implications of that, which again, I don't think was the intention, but I just can't not view it that way in 2020. It also introduces a bootstrap paradox to the series. And I don't know if either of you are familiar with that term. Well, I know you brought that up in the notes, but you know, it's basically like a, you know, an object in time travel movie somewhere in time and the book somewhere in time has it as well. And other time travel stuff. It's where some, there's no origin for something. Right. It's where in somewhere in time, there's a pocket watch that a character gives another character and they give it back. And so, and it's that characters, a, they've moved in time. Group. So it's like, right. But my argument, if you're going to say that to Johnny B. Good is a, is an example of that, I would argue no, because the way this plays is Marty McFly's normal existence. He existed in a timeline where, I mean, I'll let you have your say if you disagree, but he existed in a timeline where Chuck Berry wrote Johnny B. Good. And in that same timeline, his parents become miserable. Marty McFly travels back in time, accidentally screws stuff up, has to get his parents back and back together. And in that time, ends up playing Johnny B. Good, which jokingly kind of makes it seem like he created the song, but he didn't. Because he's created his him traveling back in time has created a new reality the same way as an alternate 1985 does, which is shown at the end of the movie. The, the, you've talked. You wanted to talk about that of how the end. He's in a completely different reality, which he is. He's so that to me, I would say there is no bootstrap paradox, at least on that element, because that song. The only reason Marty McFly knows that song exists is because Chuck Berry did write it. So, if if that's an alternate timeline, that gets to a question I have about the second one. And, and I do have, I, I do want to go back to the ending of the first one too, but since this is more relevant, when Doc is explaining the timeline in part two, and he, you know, he draws the now like very infamous, yeah. you know, time is a line and then you split it off and there's the line underneath it. The way, and, and, and maybe, maybe this is incorrect, but the way he is talking about it he makes it sound like it is specifically this change that has created an alternate timeline and they need to fix it. But almost everything they do is creating a bunch of alternate timelines. So I feel like the movie wants to keep it simple. Like, because again, the movie is trying, I think to just be foremost fun and keep things simple and light. So -hmm. I think they wanted to keep time travel simple. And that's why that, that graph or those lines he draws on a chalkboard, you know, it works in that sense. It's an easy way to explain, you know, what happened with the timeline. But if they're already in an alternate timeline because of the changes made in the first one, what Doc is explaining in part two is not what's actually happening. What's actually happening is way more complicated than what is being presented because they're already in alternate timelines. So, So going back and changing it really is just creating another timeline. Yeah. And that becomes a problem because they leave Jennifer in that specific timeline, but their, but their explanation is, Oh, that's fine that we leave her there because time is going to change around her. But if you're dealing with alternate timelines, that's not how it works. Well, so, okay. Uh, Try not to go too deep in this. I, I, Steve hasn't spoken in a while. I want, I want to give him a chance, but I, I this will... is no. The, I, this is like too. This is too heavy for me because I basically <laughs> so, because basically my my interpret 
I'll let my only say on this is me just going. I just like what they tell me in the movie, and I just like the movie. I just, I just like whatever I get explained in the movie, and, and I don't look any deeper. So, and, be, and other time travel, like Doctor Who, gets real convoluted with like the time travel stuff. But Doctor Who is also very upfront that it's convoluted, wibbly wobbly, timey wimey, and stuff like that. So because they're just being like, "Yeah, this is fucked up," like there's more license, and it, I think it's easier to forgive when it does weird things. But Back to the Future, I feel, is trying to present it in this streamlined way, and if you view it in that streamlined way, I don't think it works. I'll, I'll try to be very brief. So they they do have some kind of set rules that they made for themselves when they're working on it. One is the ripple effect, which is if something happens in the past, it will eventually catch up to the future. When, that's established in the first movie, and that's where you have Marty like vanishing from the erased from existence thing in the photograph. And so it's it's basically a device because arguably you could say if you change something in the past, it should be immediate. Marty should just be gone. But if you did that, then there's no movie and obviously you can't have that. So they had to kind of create some kind of bullshit thing of, oh, it's the ripple effect. You catch up to it. So they have that. And the other kind of rule they have that Doc establishes, at least in the second one, is Jennifer and Einstein stuff changing around them. Now, you could say, I don't know, maybe that's bullshit. But the the idea of you're talking about in the second one when it's this line represents time, which is a fantastic scene, by the way. It's one of my favorites. Um Doc is talking about getting back to the timeline, but obviously it's not the timeline from when they had never time traveled in the past. He's trying to return them to the timeline or as close to the timeline where Marty's life has improved and Doc doesn't get shot in the chest 50 times. That's the timeline they're shooting for. (laughs) That's, that's That's Doc's holding out hope for that one. Now, you're right. Just getting the book back from Biff, it's it's like the thing of you can't observe something in nature without disturbing it, that, that kind of idea. So obviously any kind of time travel, inherently, you're, you're going to have butterfly effect shit. But theoretically, I think the idea is, well, Marty got his parents back together in the old one. Marty got back to the future. Biff gets this book. We get the book away from Biff. What changes? We ran into Biff a few times. We bumped into some people and it affects them and we don't know how and don't frankly care. Cool. Like, I don't think they're worried. They, they just know that if Biff has the book, he becomes the monster of the world and that's bad. <laughs> so, it, you know, I think their idea is if we stop Biff, maybe it will maybe we'll get back to a timeline that's slightly altered, but we're not going to be dead and gone. Your parents will still be together. So, yeah, it's just, just like at the end of the first movie, Marty gets back to a reality that he didn't really grow up with. But the yeah. crux of it is that Biff having that book is disastrous for everyone. So that's what I would say. They aren't at the rules of the film are films are not. You can never really return to your exact time period. It's impossible because by going back in time and interacting with anything, you have butterfly effects something. You might not ever notice what you've changed. But you've done something. Marty goes down a street and talks to somebody he didn't before. You know, like all those things have some kind of effect. Um, But yeah, I I think the movie is trying to, since it throws so much at you in all three, they try to streamline it a bit. But the logic of what they're presenting, I believe, is that. But I, I still don't understand why Jennifer just pops over from one timeline to the other, even with that. Well, so... 
Because theoretically, uh, she should just be stuck in that timeline because no one goes back for her to bring her to the correct timeline. And again, if we're working with alternate timelines, they could go back and change that. But theoretically, then all that's doing is creating another branch of the timeline. It's not erasing yeah, the might, other timeline from existing. You might you might be right. They might because I, I know one argument they've had is that the time travelers themselves are kind of out because they're time traveling. That's why, like marty when he gets back doesn't have memories of other marty so he's he's kind of like they're outside the flow of time but i but you're probably right that that is a an iffy bit because theoretically jennifer should change the way his parents changed and stuff yeah so but i guess then Oof. it's yeah all right but I, I, I also have, have now i will say no well i will say that this is like another reason why i like what they do at the third movie is because the second movie goes so deep into what we're talking about as deep as it possibly can for a hour and 40 some minute two hour movie uh that i really enjoy and appreciate that the third movie says let's just take a step back here for a second yeah and let's just tell whether or not you like a western that's a different story but like they just try to tell you like what you were saying, Tim, sort of a similar uh, sort of uh, structurally built story to the first one where it's like, there's one goal now. We're not jumping around all these time periods. We're not getting into paradox and alternate timelines. It's just like Marty's going back in time to save not just himself, but like Doc. And it's just like, great, perfect. I love it. Yeah. Let's let's do that. Let's tell that story in like a fun, different setting that you know is is unique to the to the uh series to this point so like that is for me another like nice notch for the the third movie where i don't think i would have i don't think i would have wanted a third movie that was like let's do let's build on the crazy time insanity of the twice as many timelines yeah right let's go to 14 (laughs) different time periods in this one so i think that was obviously a smart move because uh then it just becomes like the time travel becomes too much of like a hindrance to everything else you're trying to do with it. So it kind of becomes a nice another another one. Yeah, like, the third the third yeah. is like a great yeah. It's a great way to just like spend a little more time with like, like these characters that you love one more time. You know, it's it's I I love back to I like Back to the Future for the characters more than I do the time travel. I think that's kind of, you know what I mean? So because that's why that's why even even as I'm bringing all these issues up, I still fundamentally like the movies, even even the first. It's fun to discuss. It's fun Um, to talk about. Yeah, I do think I I want to I want to what what Lytton was saying about how the people who are doing the time traveling is kind of being immune from the changes. Tim, we got out of this hole. Don't put us back in. Yeah, wait, let's get out. Because I have a a theory, and and this kind of touches on it, and it gets to to the end of the first one, because I've said... Tim just pulled out a 25-page document, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) No. So I, I mentioned in my notes that I... The ending of the first one, I don't like how it's presented as a happy ending. And and Lytton touched on it very briefly how Marty goes back to the future, but it is not his future. Like, his parents are changed. His siblings are changed. It's not the life he grew up with. And as Lytton said, he doesn't have a memory of that new life. And to me, that's kind of horrifying because you're, like, essentially just continuously being gaslit. And 
I, I had this problem even more so with Hot Tub Time Machine, if you remember that. Back to the Future, I think, gets away with it a little bit more because Marty is younger. He's in high school. So he has, theoretically, his whole life in front of him. So the fact that things in his past may have changed isn't as big of a deal. But Hot Tub Time Machine tries to do a similar ending. And I think that highlights the problems with it, where you know you have these these middle-aged dudes who, like, feel like fuck-ups, that they've wasted their life. They go back to the 80s. Things get changed so that now they're all successful. So when they go back to the future, they are seeing how their lives are all successful, but they don't actually have the memory of that. So they are now living a life that they didn't actually experience or earn. Like Craig Robinson, like he's now this like rec- award-winning record Is this just becoming producer. a rant on your hatred of Hot Tub Time Machine? yes. Just like just like how twenty eight days later became how much we hate Walking Dead, this is now how much I hate sure. Hot Tub Machine. So, but but it's so you you're now jumping forward to an alternate timeline that you didn't actually experience yourself. But like, so that kind of creates a weird cognitive dissonance. So, I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this. I don't think I I don't think they're as immune to it as that suggests after I rewatch it the second time. Largely, I don't think Marty has the memories of that that new life experience, but I do think it still shapes him in different ways. And I think and I, I don't think this is this is like fan theory kind of kind of. Uh, territory now, but I think this explains why the chicken thing becomes more prevalent in part two and three, because it never comes up in part one. But starting in part two, him being called chicken is like a big deal. And I think that has to do with the once George McFly punches out Biff, like once that aspect of the timeline has been changed, you know, we see like when we jump back to, to the present day, George McFly is a much more confident person. Biff is now working under him. That has been switched. So now George McFly is not a chicken. He's not a wimp. He's a much more confident person. I think that would lead to him raising his son to be more confident and don't be a chicken. Because they kind of play that up in like part three, like, you know, raising kids with that kind of mindset. So I think because like Marty's accident that they, they bring up in part two and that we see him avoid in part three, I don't think that would have happened had they not gone back in the first movie. I think that changed enough so that George McFly raised Marty slightly differently and subconsciously that changed how Marty was operating. So now being called a chicken triggers a more intense response because he has now been raised by someone instilling, you can't be a chicken, you need to stand up for yourself. Tim, at this point, point, I'm just like, I love time travel movies. You've ruined them all for me now. Uh, I am never watching Doctor Who if this is what it does to you. Uh, I I do. I do want to move on to some other stuff, but I will very briefly address. Yeah, they don't gain memories from the previous people. Uh, I mean, it's fine with fan theories and whatever, but I just don't think there's evidence for that in the movie. When they get to the alternate 1985, they don't gain the memories of those people. So and they, and they would otherwise. So I don't, th- there is a reason for the chicken stuff, which I think are, is worth addressing in a minute. But so all, all of that, I, I, I believe, you know, they are, they are just from their timeline and they bounce around to whatever timeline and they show up at a new one. 
but the uh, the only other thing I'll add, and then I will let Steve take us to whatever topic he wants to, is <laughs> I the note I had in the document was they would have fired you like they fired Eric Stoltz. I because... don't know who that is. <laughs> okay, so for some Back to the Future trivia, Michael J. Fox was not, he was the original person they wanted for Marty, but they couldn't get him because he was on Family Ties. So they got Eric Stoltz, who it was like a you know up and coming actor at the time. They shot five weeks worth of footage with him. He wasn't funny. You can find it. Yeah, well, some of it. They they they, yeah, they never released like any scenes where he's talking. It's just like scenes of him walking around and stuff. But from everyone talks about like that he's a good actor and he is, but that he took everything way too seriously and that you know they were trying to make the film a comedy and that the scenes just were not working. And so Spielberg and Zemeckis had to go in with other studio execs and show them like, hey, you know, this is a comedy, right? And this is the guy we cast and we don't want to do this, but we need to recast. And they watch the footage and they're like, yeah, you absolutely need to recast because Eric Stoltz just had like an intensity and seriousness to it. Whereas Michael J. Fox played everything loose and light and jumping around. And um, so they eventually got Fox. They got Fox like they wanted but one of the key aspects is I've heard a story of like Eric Stoltz talking on set about the ending and saying like, well, yeah, it's just kind of depressing, you know, like he, he just returns to like, you know, this time that he didn't ever live and he didn't know. And that Leah Thompson has told a story that she was on set when he was talking about that, but she got the vibe from like Bob Zemeckis and Bob Gale and everyone else. She's like, Oh no, Eric, don't say those things. <laughs> like, cause she knew like, that's not, that's not what they want. They don't so what want you. What you're saying is the set was very 1984 and suppressing differing opinions. Uh, I <laughs> guess. Or just, Tim, why don't we just, why don't we just get you on the phone? Why don't we just get you on the phone with Eric Stoltz and you can, you and him can hash. We're going to, we're going to form a fan club of two. <laughs> All I'm saying is I, their goal was to make a fun time travel adventure that I think they did do a lot of good stuff with the actual time travel thinking it out. But yeah, Eric Stoltz came in this very like the world is being shattered by your actions, Robert Zemeckis. <laughs> Eric, so Stoltz say, is, Eric Stoltz is my QAnon. That's they what, they, that's what they would is. have fired you too, Tim. <laughs> I, I will. Yeah, I will. Uh, you know, last last thought on that is, Tim, you have a pretty incredible viewpoint on this whole thing. I think it's great. I think you should write a book on it. You you should be going to get a PhD in this. My dissertation. That was, yeah, that, that, was a, that was such a deep dive I've never heard before. It was great. Um, and the only thing I will say that before moving on to the next thing, question that I have for you guys is if I uh, could go back in time and then come back to the future being filthy rich but not have a memory of how I got filthy rich, cool with me. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, and not have to work for it, great. Um, here's my question for you guys. And I think this was answered in the comics at the end of the third movie. Um, when doc Brown now has his flying train, um, uh, Marty asks him, doc Brown is now married to Clara and he's got two children, Jules and Vern. And there is a very weird, I actually didn't realize this. I, I looked at the clip online, but if you notice the one child Vern, I believe is doing like this weird thing with his hand and he's like grabbing his crotch uh scratching his crotch during it so if you go back and watch you'll see when he introduces the kids and he's talking to marty about their future not being written that one of his kids is just scratching his dick that's (laughs) 
that's a thing that's gotten i never noticed it for years however many times i saw this movie but it circulated on the internet a few years ago and like one of those kind of like buzz feeds like what the fuck kind yeah of thing. um so what he does is he like he's docs forefront of the camera but the kids in the background and he does this little like like come here come with us with his, with yeah. his hand, and then he points at his crotch the guess that people have is that he was probably signaling like his mother or whoever was like his caretaker on set was he had to go to the bathroom that's what yeah. they think is probably what it was but yeah it, it does make for a <laughs> weird thing once you know it's there right yeah you feel bad for the kid because it's not like he was doing anything <laughs> explicit but yeah so there's this weird point right over doc's head but my question is not about a child <laughs> scratching himself it's um <laughs> he does say he asks uh, marty asks him you know are you going back to the future and doc says no already been there so my question is and again this might have been answered in a spin-off comic but like where would he be going yeah, where, he, where does doc he's also already been would, to the past right so <laughs> is he going to like the dinosaur times like what's happening um so yeah I, I, we'll dive into some other media here later on but um yeah i mean i think the idea just like the end of the first one it's just they're going off to some other adventures in the comics the comics delve into a lot of different time periods and they do some stuff that takes place like in between and they do some stuff that takes place before the events of the movies that one i think they the very last comic they did was a series called tales from the time train and I think that was the first one that actually showed post three. Everything else had been other points. Like some of it had been like Doc interacting with previous things and stuff. I don't know. Uh, but post three, he and Clara and the kids go to like the, I think it's like the 1939 World's Fair in New York. So it's actually really cool. That's cool. Like it's, yeah. And so yeah. They, they tie in some like futurism stuff in the exhibits for that. And there's like Nazis that are, you know, in the World's Fair, like trying to get something. And um, so that becomes part of the adventure. It's it was like a better idea than it was executed. But that's that's the the most recent adventure. And that was the last thing with the comic. They had run it for a good while, but I think the sales were declining. And so that was the last one they did as of right now. So so. OK, so getting into sort of the alternate or 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 the spin-off other media. So there have been tons of comics, video games. Uh you've got the Rick and Morty series which is they I mean a, I've never wa- I've never seen it, but that's essentially they had a Saturday morning back to the future in the early 90s too. Yeah, um so I'll tr- give a brief rundown. I've never really t- I've never dove- I've never gotten into much of any of it. I've read some of the comics. I had Happy Meal toys based off the cartoon series, but that's about as far as my my extracurricular activities go with the series. So the car- <laughs> cartoon I watched somewhat as a kid, but even as a kid, I remember being like, well, this isn't very good. And I think it's just, <laughs> it operates just differently. It's just kind of dumbed down and it doesn't have, I think if you were to do a modern cartoon, they could make it feel very much similar to the, um, you know, to the originals, but I feel it's like late eighties, early nineties, I think it's early nineties cartoons. So it's just that level. I mean, there, there could be good episodes. I don't know, but I remember them not being great. The other alternate media, uh, extended media, the video games from the eighties are famously terrible, including the first one for, for, uh, Nintendo where like everything kills you. Like you try to get through, like I can get to like level two or three, but like everything murders <laughs> yeah. you. Marty is just being like hunted down by 
bees and it's <laughs> bees. but but uh so there, there's that i'll come back to the other game they did the comics that started uh, around 2015 when uh the celebrations were happening the comics ran for there's probably six or seven volumes they did different kinds of things they adapted a video game they did a story that told the rise of night uh, alternate biff and that was probably the best one they did the comics are fun they could be better drawn at times um and it sometimes seemed like the stories could have maybe been pushed a little further but overall I very much enjoy them. Bob Gale was involved in them. They did a recent dice and card game, and hmm. I, I've never played it, but it looks like it's well produced. But it's um, they just tell the story of the of the three movies, which I thought was really frustrating because just tell me a new adventure, like tell use these right. characters in this game. So I don't, I wouldn't probably get that myself. But the the crown jewel of it all, if you haven't played it, Telltale did a game called uh back to the future i think it's just back to the future the game and then each episode had a, like a subtitle but so there's like five chapters to it and it's back to the future the game they've re-released it on several consoles and things but christopher lloyd returns as doc brown thomas thomas f wilson came back like on a later version of the game and recorded biff lines the original Jennifer comes back as Jennifer and then Michael J. Fo- they, they recast Michael J. Fox with an actual young kid, but he does a spot on Marty McFly. And then they got Michael J. Fox to record some like McFly relatives in some fun ways. And the game is cool. Yeah. So I'll just, uh, I'll, I'll pass it off here, but I will highly recommend the game because as a super fan of the series, I assumed, okay, there's never going to be anything else. And they made this game, and I'm like, all right, I have to give it a shot and just see. So the game is actually pretty phenomenal on a storytelling level. On a gameplay level, it's fine. It's just like a point-and-click puzzle game. It's a telltale game, so it's it's yeah. very much just story-driven. Right, And so, but the story is actually fantastic. They reuse, or they use elements that Bob Gale had developed. Bob Gale worked on the script with the people. Um, they re- they use elements that he had considered for the sequels. It most of it takes place. It large portions of the game takes place in the 1930s, so you get a very different vibe for Hill Valley. You get Biff Tannen's father. You get a very young Doc, and then eventually things get messed up, and you end up in a very 1984 totalitarian state, and Doc is hmm. the villain. And oh wow. Yeah, and the game just does, like, if you would have actually been able to film this as a movie back in the day, it would have been a fantastic movie. And uh, it's just, I, I can't say enough good things about it on a storytelling level. So if you haven't played it and you are a fan, track it down. I may have to do the, uh, my. I don't really play video games, but I do watch walkthroughs of games for series that I like. So I may end up watching it. Um, but that gets into kind of wrapping things up in terms of where you can go from here. And you mentioned Bob Gale being involved in the creation of the comics and also the video game. And I think you were going to mention this at some point, Linton, but like Zemeckis and Gale have this crazy thing where like they retain the rights to the series as for as long as they live Zemeckis and Gale, they own it. And they're so basically for over their, basically over their dead body is there's not going to be, 
anything substantial with Back to the Future happening. Yes. Which means the minute that both of them are dead, you're going to have four more movies and you're going to have a brand new series greenlit that just, and a reboot. So like that's going to happen. But so, yeah, we, we should definitely dive into where we think it could go. But I'll, I'll very if, if I may very briefly address uh, you may that that deal. Yeah, they Zemeckis and Gale have what has to be one of the most insane deals for a franchise film. And I've never read why it is, but you you know all these franchises that come out, the studio owns them. They they own them lock, stock, and barrel. If they want to make a sequel, they go off and make a sequel. They want to reboot it, whatever. Often, oftentimes they'll bring in the original people, but those people don't, in most cases, have a say. And I think because it was the 1980s and the sequel franchise landscape wasn't the same that they got this deal. But my understanding is when they made the original, it was not supposed to be a series. It was a huge hit, one of the biggest hits ever. It's not like the moneymaker, but at the time it was like within the top 15 ever or something. Um, yeah. So it was it was pretty big. Universal wanted a sequel. And so the head of Universal went to them and was trying to convince them. And they were kind of like, I don't know. And he said, eventually he was like, well, look, guys, it's going to happen. So if you want involved, great. But if you don't, We'll give it to somebody else. And I think they were too tied to these characters to let that happen. And they were worried about what happens if somebody else does it and they fuck it up. Yeah. So they agreed to a sequel. And my guess is they got the deal then. I've never read this, but my guess is they got the deal to prevent anything further. That it was contingent on, we'll come back for this if you agree to X. And so what they have is... There can be no remakes, no reboots, no sequels, nothing can happen without their go-ahead. And I think the language is Universal can't even have like a meeting about it without involving them. So Universal can't wow. get something like going and then they come to them. So they are they have been adamant for years that there won't be anything else. And Zemeckis has even said, Yeah, I don't know if they'll be able to figure out anything with my estate. Like, so he, even that's what I was going to, my next question was going to be, he like, he would prefer it. I don't know if legally they will be able to, but I also think, you know, they're in their sixties. They could live well for another 20 years at, at a certain point, the nostalgia of this is going to be gone. So I don't know. I don't know how much the legs are going to be there and the cast would be too old or gone. And so, but yeah, so basically there uh, the outside media, uh, which is also Back to the Future, the musical, um, which I forgot to mention, that was a recent thing. What? <laughs> I didn't <Yeah>. know that. <laughs> it came out right before the pandemic in London. And so that, oh, wow. that's not great. But but yeah, so basically there will almost certainly not be another film. Uh, but okay. go ahead with wherever I'm, you guys would take it and then I'll jump in at the end. I'm fine with that. Cause, and I think Steve's in the same point as I am. I think it's fine as is. The comics and like the the peripheral stuff is fine but i think you know you have i mean you guys are saying it's a perfect trilogy i don't think it's perfect but i do think it's very good in general i would this is something that i'm fine with them leaving it alone especially since i mean you're you'd have to replace christopher lloyd because he's you know he's getting up there and i don't i think he really holds the series together because the character of doc brown I think it very easily just go off the rails and like be way too eccentric or way too, you know, way too much 
basically. But I think Christopher Lloyd found like a really good balance. So you get that kind of frantic energy, but it doesn't overwhelm his sincerity, especially where it relates to his relationship with Marty. So I, I, I'm fine. Just, just leave it alone. I think, I mean, I think my preference would be to probably leave it um, at least, at least on a, from a film perspective. Uh, I think eventually, like Linton said, I, you know, the nostalgia will wear off and, and some of the cast will be too old or passed on. And so I think like I might, at some point be a little more willing to accept. I mean, I, you know, someday a reboot's coming. Like in our lifetime, there will be a reboot of this movie. It's just going to happen. And I think maybe by the time that it does, I'll be like willing to see what happens with it. Uh, especially because if there's a reboot of it, it will be so far from the original that you'll be dealing with decades that could be completely off from what, like somebody will go back to the nineties to save, you know, themselves, their themselves and their parents or something. So like, I actually think there may be coming a time where a reboot could actually be a lot of fun where you're so far removed from the decades that are used in these movies to where it actually could be something kind of fun. So maybe that would be cool in like another like 30 years. Um, I think it might actually open itself up to being kind of a cool concept if you were to do something now, I actually think if it was approached, if like Bob Gale was involved, I think like a, a series could be really fun, like an animated series. If it was approached, if it was if it was uh, animated well and it wasn't for kids and it was on like a Netflix or something, I think you Back could do like a re- after dark. <laughs> yeah, it's on it's an HBO or Cinemax type of thing. It's very R, very hard channel. R. Yeah, <laughs> I think uh, I, I think something like that would be cool. Um, telling you know a story that like Bob Gale's always wanted to incorporate into the canon. Um, that that basically Netflix is like, yeah, we'll give you all the money you want to make something cool. Uh, I think that would work out pretty well. But yeah, I actually think like from a concept of a film, like give me a wait, let me go out another like twenty five thirty years because I actually think a reboot could make sense. At, at that point we'll be you know 60 years old um but i might be willing by that point to, to see it so but yeah i mean if i had my way i'd probably just leave it so i think there are some ways you could like if you were to do it today if uh if gail and zemeckis actually wanted to do it i think there's some ways you could approach it if you could get a good enough script together uh, one aspect they've always addressed that's a problem, because they had kind of kicked around some possible ideas in the past, but once Michael J. Fox came out with his Parkinson's, uh, they essentially kind of dropped it, because Michael J. Fox just can't, he still acts, but he can't act to the same amount as he was once able to, and obviously the role of Marty is a very physical role, and I think it would be difficult, it would be certainly difficult to for him to do the same kind of performance as he once did. So I think that has always been a blockade. They don't really want to, but I think they've addressed that as, you know, even if we had a great idea, we have to, you know, that, that would be something that would be front and center. But even with that, I think there's ways you could address it. I think you could carry on with Jules and Vern having adventures and Doc could be kind of like a peripheral, yeah. like, like you could have it where like Doc gets lost in time. And then you could, Doc's role would obviously be lessened. 
you would need to do it like Force Awakens. So you would have the task of you need to create characters that people fucking love from the word go, which mm-hmm. as great as as I think the new Star Wars movies are, even that people get bitched about. But but I'd say that would be the closest model where you would need to create Jules and Vern as like full-fledged, really fun characters. And then Doc could be kind of the MacGuffin. Uh, I've also thought it could be cool if Marty didn't go down like a, a musician path and actually became more like invo- interested in science because of everything. And he's like, he's like a garage tinkerer, like with hmm. contraptions and stuff. I think it would just be neat to see a Marty different in the future. And I, yeah. and I think that if Marty like kind of took on almost a doc role. Sure. Like, you know, and, and that could reduce Michael J. Fox's time on screen potentially. But yeah, having Christopher Lloyd in it, I love him, but he's over 80 at this point. And I think he's like in fairly good health for his age, but he just, I've seen him in things and he just, you know, he doesn't have that energy. I mean, he can't Yeah, like, you know, that he did right. when he was like 40 to 45 and, you know, Michael J. Fox had great energy too, but like, if you couldn't have Marty and you could just have Doc, theoretically the movie could work, but Christopher Lloyd, I think, just can't be Doc the way he once was. But if you had him in a smaller part, it could possibly work. And then the other thing that's been thrown around a lot is uh, um, Tom Holland. Like, I uh, I love the him as Spider-Man, and I read sometime back that I guess he actually based his performance of Peter Parker on Marty McFly, which when I read that, I was like, that makes so much sense. Yeah. That tracks. But he yeah. also looks a ton like Michael J. Fox and he, I could buy him as Marty jr. Even though you know he's not literally the same face, but you could even explain that of like, Oh, it's a different timeline. You know, you could do whatever that he's, yeah, he's I mean, slightly different now, but right. So yeah. you could theoretically do that where you pick up with Marty jr. In the present, essentially, and you would still be able to incorporate Doc and Marty. You would probably incorporate Jules and Vern. You probably get a female character in there somewhere, um, you know. So I think it's there's ways you could do it, but you always, of course, run the risk of what if they fuck it up. So yeah, yeah, I what if this sucks? Just, yeah. I, I'm fine with it just being three and perfect. Yep. I, I agree. Although the Jules and Vern thing, and then possibly like a Marty Jr. type of thing, uh, both, all those are really fun ideas, and I, I would actually I'd be down for any of those. Uh, but like you said, yeah, this is just one of those series where we are lucky enough to also still have it in the shape that it is, which is that you've got three just like fantastic movies that range from either being like Tim's opinion of it, like, yeah, they're all really good, to our opinion of, yeah, these are basically perfect. Like, I, you can't get much better than that. So, you know, I'm happy either way. So, wrapping things up here, um, does anybody have any final thoughts before we head out? Uh, but Tim's got Tim's still got his book out, and he's he says he's willing to go another four hours explaining time travel. I got to practice for my uh, my thesis defense, my dissertation defense. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. This, this episode is just that. It's going to just play this. No, I don't have anything um, more on the series. Yeah. I like I said, I I enjoy them all. I think they're good. So okay, all right, okay. Um, I just wanted to throw out a couple quick things that never there was nowhere to fit them in. One uh, one thing I really like about the series is that they make Marty just flat out clever. That 
I mean, he's running around and doing a bunch of junk, but like the skateboard under the car thing in part two, when he's running away from Biff's gang, he like hops this double stairwell to like hide up on one of the stairwells, which I've always thought is just a really cool and smart thing. And then the bulletproof mm-hmm. vest. So I just think they make him an interesting character because he is small and he is, you know, in danger of from Tannen or people with literal guns and I think it works well to the character that they make him. He's obviously not like, you know, smart like Doc, but I think it's a benefit of the series that they make him like pretty clever, street smart. Yeah. And then another real quick thing is we were talking about all the scientific jargon they throw at you and stuff in the series. On rewatching, I realized like they they do a similar thing with like Ghostbusters where a lot of stuff will be presented and then they undercut it with a joke. So they get it both ways where they get the information out there, but then, oh, it's okay. It's funny. And so like, there's one where, when Doc goes on that big rant of where we've been, where we've going, um, maybe an answer to the universal question, why? And, and Marty goes, well, what's wrong with making a few bucks on the side? And then the other one is yeah. when they're going to go back to November 12th to get the book. Doc says like, maybe that that date is a temporal junction point in the whole space time continuum. On the other hand, it could just be an amazing coincidence. And I yeah. realized in rewatching that it's basically what the Marvel movies do. That the Marvel movies will present a lot of exposition and here's stuff you need to know. And then they'll have Captain Mar- or they'll have Iron Man come in or Spider-Man come in and make a joke. And so mm-hmm. it, it relieves the tension. Um, so, yeah, I just think it's an interesting structure and that it was kind of ahead of its time for that. Yeah. Love it. Uh, uh, Tim, uh, wrapping things up, what plugs? I know you've got plugs. Yeah, so if you guys are enjoying our uh, rambling for hours at a time on movies, uh, don't just listen to the podcast. Uh, subscribe to us on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify. We have social media accounts. So we have a page on Facebook. We have an Instagram account. You can follow us on Twitter at, at BackFranchise. That was the best I could get that wasn't already taken. Uh, so kind of weird, but uh, you can follow us on all those social media platforms. And we'll uh, next time, to give you guys a little, you know, something to anticipate, uh, I'll, I'll be diving into The Last of Us. So we'll be switching up and doing a video game franchise uh, as opposed to movies. But that will be the next episode. And then after that, not to give specific things away, but we will be doing some Halloweeny things for October. Halloweeny, it's coming. It's spookening. Um, all right, the spookening is upon us. That is it, uh, and we will see you later, buttheads. Let's review some films. Let's review some films. Let's review some films. See what we gotta say.